This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. But his will is Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? God's rest is not something to sit back and enjoy. How can it be? Our bodies deteriorate with every passing breath. We approach the end of our lives with the fleeting of every moment. God's rest is for us, but it is through repentance that we find it. God is not commanding us to chill. He is not asking us to kick back and watch him work. He is asking us to do the work. When we hear his teaching, we should hear our own sins revealed and then be moved to action because our lives are fleeting. There's no time to bask in the beauty and peace and love of Daddy God. There is a tremendous amount of work to do. And because of that love, he commands us to repentance. And through that repentance, we are moved to action. This action brings rest, but when we chill out and enjoy it, we end up falling back into sin, and we have to go through the whole process all over again. The rest should energize us. We can't become fat and lazy, having a nice time, enjoying how much we love God. We have to be on the move. It's a poetic contradiction. Repentance brings rest, but the scriptural idea of rest is that it drives you toward action, movement, expending energy. It's not very restful, is it? You have to expend energy toward helping others, the sick, the lowly, the widow, so that you can multiply that rest, which is the product of God's mercy. This is the story. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we begin this chapter, that is chapter 6, with some setup for the iniquity, which eventually brings forth the great deluge. We hear about the Beni Ha Elohim, that is the sons of God, taking the Benot Ha Adam, that is the daughters of man, into marriage and then subsequently reproducing with them. 
This union results in the creation of the infamous Nephilim, or according to the Septuagint, the giants, who are described as famous mighty men. Now let's pause here and break this down a little bit. This is a highly controversial section in scripture, and it has always been so. Even when investigating early patristic and also rabbinic commentaries, it becomes increasingly clear that everyone and their mother views this section differently and has varying interpretations. So I won't waste your time trying to pinpoint the exact identity of these characters because there's much more interesting and productive things to talk about. Bigger fish to fry. Much bigger fish to fry. There's bigger fish to fry than the giants themselves? Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, what happens is that people come across a verse like this where we start talking about the Nephilim and uh, their imaginations go off. It's very uh, elusive and mysterious. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, you, there's, there's, there's so many like weird fringe theories about the Nephilim, but basically my, my whole point is not to get hung up on the exact identities of, of these things or, or let our imaginations go wild. And this is really the first time in scripture that something like this will happen. Um, so what I want to make absolutely clear is that instead of <laughs> trying to piece together this lore, so to speak, uh, let's figure out what the story is telling us. What is the text telling us about the Nephilim? So we'll get into that as we go on, but I want to make that distinction here. We're here to hear the story, right? We're not here to focus and, and uh, debate about these minute details that aren't important. The, the things that we should focus on, of course, is like, you know, if there's a Hebrew functionality to a certain name, then yeah, okay, we'll focus a lot of energy on that. But if uh, it's it's something like, um, you know, were the Nephilim really giants? Or, you know, were, is it giants in a literal sense or giants in their personality or whatever? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the most beautiful things I think about uh, modern storytelling um, in fantasy and sci-fi uh, and just really exciting stories is that they develop an entire fan base. And one of the roles of that fan base is to uh, inject their own meaning and drama into the story. And it makes the, the story so much more saturated with, with meaning. And I think that can be a really beautiful thing. Um, but the Bible is not the Lord of the Rings. You have to <laughs> read it for what it's telling you. And I think the, the authors are all too aware of this uh, very human tendency um, whenever whenever they hear stories. Uh, they want to make out of the story what they want, not what the authors want, uh, not what God wants. Yes, yeah, so this isn't the Bible fan club, yep. and, and we're not talking about fan fiction here. You know, we're, we're uh, as self-professing slaves to God, you know, it's, it's, it's up to us to really take the text seriously. I mean, you know, we're having fun doing this, but at the same time, it's not about the fun, Amen. <laughs> you know, it's about, it, it's, it, it's an obligation. It's, you know, it's, so anyway, without getting too deep into that tangent, I just wanted to make that <laughs> clear before I, I'd get into it. But I think it's also important for uh, our listeners, uh, if they're not already aware, to just be aware of, of some common in, interpretations of what the Nephilim are. Um, so I'll discuss that very briefly, but I wanted to, to make that, that header that this is not the point of the podcast. 
right? The point of the podcast is to hear the story. So I'll, I'll present some common interpretations and then I'll dial it back and, um, you know, go back to the bare bones of, of uh, what the text is actually saying. So uh, there's basically two camps, right? One camp, which is a lot more common in Jewish circles, is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and, uh, and so this section is about them intermingling with Cain's descendants, who are the, the, uh, the daughters of, of man. And uh, so through that interaction, the sons of God become fallen. Uh, the second camp, which is a bit more traditionally Christian, is the idea that the sons of God are fallen angels, and that this is about the creation of the giants due to uh, the impregnation of human women by angelic beings. This is something that you can find in really early patristic sources, but also in Second Temple Jewish writings. Again, when we hear stuff like this, our imaginations tend to go haywire. So uh, that's like the very thing that we're trying to discourage. <laughs> Speaking also about other theories about the Nephilim, uh, the, the one that I find the most intriguing, although again, this isn't about our opinion, but the one that I find the most intriguing as far as how the text is presenting it is the idea that this section is a parody on the phenomenon of demigods in mythology. Uh, particularly because of the emphasis it places on the Nephilim being quote-unquote mighty men, and uh, especially mighty men of renown. Literally, the Hebrew says that they were men of the name, meaning that their names have attained notoriety. Uh, this also calls to mind the statement by the builders of the Tower of Babel, who do so to, quote, make a name for themselves, in other words, to be famous. And we'll see throughout the biblical story that the only name that matters is the name of God. Uh, and, of, and of course, that uh, has, uh, we, we, we see that come to a head in one of Noah's sons, Shem. Shem means name. What name is he carrying along? Well, context clues, I'm sure you could figure it out. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so in, in looking at famous legendary characters in ancient mythological lore, the one thing that most of them have in common is that they share some percentage of divine blood, right? So these are your Gilgameshes, your Herculeses, your Perseuses, and all similar literary figures. I think it's uh, Persei. Percy I, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know what the, what the official uh, plural is for that, but... Uh, Anyway, I mean, as we've established already, the Bible has a distaste for human kings. And how fitting is it also that human kings have historically been deified by traditions making them both God and man? It all fits. So before we go off on the deep end in speculation, we need to keep our minds sober and realize that we shouldn't waste time trying to understand these exact identities what the authors had in mind, because what the authors had in mind is simple, really, because they explain it later on with talking about that these were mighty men of renown, meaning that their, their names were famous. So what is it saying? It's saying that the self-serving pursuit for fame and notoriety and the pursuit of might and power and godhood will lead us to fall. So literally, Nephilim in Hebrew means the falling ones. They are cultural giants but they are fallen and wicked. That's what it's saying. 
the, the, the Nephilim are cultural heroes. And the Bible warns us against this. Once again, remember the temptation of the serpent. If you eat from the tree, you will be like God. It's a demut that leads to mot. This is a mashal concocted to teach us a lesson. And we especially see this today within the lives of our own cultural giants. Look at celebrities. As the reformed Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. Absolutely. And if you look at all the, the different interpretive methods of understanding who the Nephilim, it, doesn't, it, it ultimately doesn't matter. Um, if you prescribe to um, one identification of uh, the Nephilim or another, and then you apply it to the text, regardless, you're going to come to the same conclusions. So as we said earlier, the Nephilim is just one example um, of the phenomenon of some of our most controversial biblical topics today. Which honestly, it might just be controversial because we're people of the internet. I don't know if it was really controversial before that, but it, but it, yeah. it, 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 just, it just seems like something that, um, that really intrigues people when, it, when it's kind of weird, you know, because it's like it, people get so intrigued by these little minute things and then they miss out on what the story is saying. Like, like I've had experiences where um, I've had conversations with people about these like little quirky details and, and they'll just like go on and on and on about, uh, about you know, crazy fringe theories about whatever, whatever. And then you, you ask them, okay, but what is, what is the, the lesson? What is the story telling you? And it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't had time to think about that. You know, that. or like, or like, you know, they'll, they'll give you like a, like a timeline of events type of thing, but that's not what the biblical story is. The biblical story is the lesson behind the mashal. The, the, the mashal is there to teach you, but, uh, the, the story does no good if, if you don't understand the call to action beneath the story. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not just character did this and then did this and then, you know, it's not just that it's like, there's, there's a, a lesson that is being taught to you underneath the story. So that's what we need to be focusing on. That's what we need to, uh, really hone in all of our time and effort and especially in, in learning the Hebrew to make these stories clearer, not try and figure out these crazy, uh, things like it's 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 like those youtube videos where it's like top 10 things you missed in x movie it's like that's not what this is yeah this, that's not what, the, what this is about you know yeah. this isn't a cameo appearance by anybody i mean it, <laughs> it, it all the text is saying is that your cultural heroes are causing their own destruction and if you follow in their wake you will also be destroyed by your own ego and your own uh your own bloodthirsty power hungry you know ambitions yeah that's all it's saying <laughs> yeah that might be boring to some people but that's that's what the bible is saying <laughs> yeah that ab simple absolutely so it's an uh, it's an unfortunate thing that people waste so much time on on delving into these uh fantastical ideas uh and and, and unfortunately we have to do the same thing and, and waste a bunch of time unexplaining all of yeah. these fantastical <laughs> ideas so let's get back to it uh so i i want to make the argument that um among the uh, various instances of uh, these type of happenings in, in Scripture, these minute details that cause people to fantasize and create all these crazy ideas, I think it's all intentional uh, on behalf of the authors. This is uh, similar to how I 
view the quote-unquote contradictions found in the in the Bible and especially in the New Testament in the four gospel accounts. It's almost like the authors of these texts are clever enough to write about certain aspects within the story that they know their hearers will get hung up on deliberately to contradict said aspects or to deliberately leave them unexplained in order to communicate that they are not important in the way that we want to insert importance. Now, I'm not saying that when we have a uniqueness appear in the text without anything qualifying it, that we should ignore it, but rather that we have a tendency to load the wrong type of importance into these oddities. Like Blaze said, these Nephilim are men of renown, men who desire to make a name for themselves, men who celebrate human prowess and ego. Now, if you call back to our understanding of Cain's lineage, his dynasty, as being precisely the lineage of this very human attitude, as we've discussed, you can see how the theory of the Nephilim being Seth's descendants intermingled with Cain's descendants totally makes sense. Uh, the cultural attitude developed in Cain's lineage dominated the otherwise holy lineage of Seth, and that is that the offspring were men of renown, powerful men who chased after human glory. Likewise, uh, if we interpret the sons of God as being angelic beings or gods, then we can see, as Blaze said, that these Nephilim are meant to represent the demigods or the patriarchal godlike figures of various people and religions. This also totally makes sense because of the Bible's tendency to squelch the personalities of the deities of various religions amongst the cultures around them. It's important to remember that religion and state were not separate realities at this time. A people were their religion. Perhaps they adopted gods of other people or they rejected them. It doesn't matter. The story of the people was their religion and the relationship between them and the God within their story. The kings of these various nations would often have a member of the scribal community in the court draft a dynasty that ultimately linked that king back to a god, effectively making the king a god himself. Well, the Bible is damning this reality. It's insulting it spitting in its face. Entire nations attribute their worth and history to a story such as the ones I mentioned, and the Bible is saying, meh, these gods of yours are an abomination, a disgusting reality. The product was indeed mighty men, but men of a curse, men who will be wiped from the face of the earth by the swift hand of God, the Almighty God. It's so powerful when you have all of this context. And again, this is the lore that's being built within the story all as a means of instructing us, not as a means to teach us about giants. If we are hearing this, and we are not hearing that we are the abominations, we are the results of men, our fathers, who sought to make a name for themselves, then we're not hearing scripture. If we are not hearing that we will seek to make a name for ourselves, crafting gods by our own wit and cunning to worship, and then subsequently produce offspring through in order to preserve our power and make a mark upon humanity, be it through possession or progeny, then we are not hearing the story. Man, that just really made me think of the biggest pet peeve I think I have of, um, really, I, I, think, I think Christians in this country are the most guilty of this, although all humans are guilty of it, but when people are so concerned and adamant about having this place be a Christian country, but it's always like like nominally a Christian country. It's like we've, we've got to preserve certain traditions, but like by traditions they mean like 
having the Ten Commandments in a court house or something, you know, it's, it, but, but it's, it's never actually practicing the religion, but it's like, it's, 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 it's like the, the name of the religion where we're, we're, we're trying to, to keep Christianity, like, like the, the nominal religion of the country just to preserve its name, you know, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, you know, cause, cause at, at that point it might as well be called anything, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's really bizarre, and 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 we're we're like that with with everything that we find dear. We 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 want to preserve uh, our country, right? The whole like make America great again thing, you know. <laughs> it's it's uh it's silly. It's like it's like what are we actually preserving here? Are we just preserving a concept, you know? Right. When Paul says God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, we have to take that to heart because we do it day in and day out. And as Blaze was just saying. It pervades our culture. Today, in our culture, all of the stories we share are those of superheroes and powerful force users, crafty wizards and hyper-intellectual problem solvers. We whore after ourselves, human beings. Whether the human in the story carries benevolent traits or not, like Peter Parker in Spider-Man 2, the story is about him, the human. It's okay to be entertained by these stories. They can be great fun and they can indeed carry biblical lessons. But we cannot let ourselves be moved to an admirance of the human being that trumps our adherence to God's instruction. When we do, we adopt the likeness of that human character, sometimes literally so by changing ourselves to be more like their personality. Think about when you're a kid and you see a really exciting uh, superhero movie. You walk out of that movie thinking, I'm going to act more like that guy. We see the best parts of ourselves in them, and we want to adopt what they have that we don't in order to make ourselves better, more powerful. When we do this, those characters become false gods, and we become the Nephilim. For those with ears to hear, for those with ears to hear, let them hear. And also, don't mimic biblical characters. Yeah, we would do that. <laughs> That's a big no-no. <laughs> <laughs> we should also point out the mention of God's spirit leaving man and God limiting the man's lifespan to 120 years. In the ESV, the version we are reading, it says. And the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be numbered 120 years. And yes, that is my spirit with a capital M and a capital S. I hate to say it, but this is not a good rendering. In fact, it so heavily waters down the original, sugarcoating it, making it nicer to hear for our New Testament ears, that it causes us to totally miss the point. This translation makes it seem like there is, within the story, some allusion to or self-awareness of the Holy Spirit falling upon man once again in the New Testament, granting eternal life and peace. God, I really like this interpretation, but I just can't get behind it. It's not faithful to the text. This is just not what Genesis is saying. And truthfully, I think what Genesis is saying is much more impressive. First, we have to establish what the Spirit of God is within Scripture so that we don't make assumptions about the Holy Spirit as a Trinitarian personality and all these abstractions. The Spirit of God is the Ruach, which is a Hebrew word that means wind. God's Spirit, as we call it, is God's wind. If we understand the storytelling concepts of wind, then we can understand what's happening in this story a little bit more. Without confusing ourselves about the metaphysical existential properties of the Spirit of the Almighty God. So there are three things I want to focus on. The first is that wind is unpredictable. Just as the ways of God 
are unsearchable. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks with Nicodemus in John's gospel. You don't know where the wind comes from, you don't know where it's going. He doesn't say, yeah, this is kind of like what God's Spirit is like. He's saying this is God's Spirit, which is precisely the way the Old Testament handles it. So that's in part what he means when he pokes fun at Nicodemus being a teacher of Torah, but not understanding spiritual things. Second is that wind cannot be pinned down. No one can control wind. Even if we use tools like air tunnels, box fans, or air conditioning, we are simply manipulating the current. We don't actually have a grasp on wind. And lastly, wind can guide you or destroy you. Just as it blows upon the sails of a boat, it can guide the boat, billowing the sails, pushing it across the water, or it can utterly destroy the boat, flip it upside down, and blow its bits across the sea. The wind of God is just as these, and the stories throughout the Old Testament feature it in these ways. We know a bit about the culture that the Bible is uh, born out of, so let's consider its geography. The Midbar, the wilderness east of Eden, is the Syro-Arabian desert. What happens in the desert related to wind? Sandstorms. This had to have been on the minds of the authors when they referenced the destructive capabilities of wind. Sandstorms can be extremely dangerous, what with a huge cloud of sand being blown up by the wind, hurtling microscopic rocks at anything in its path, reducing visibility to naught. It is truly a frightening thing. When we hear the Spirit of God, we have to put in a little bit of work to think about these concepts sooner than we would think about those theological ideas. The story is for everyone, so it uses practical concepts, not existential ones. Building from that idea, let's consider the ESV's wording in its choice to render the word abide, as in, my spirit shall not abide in them forever. This is the wrong choice of word. I'm just going to say it, especially if we are using the aforementioned practical scriptural understanding of the wind of God, which cannot be pinned down, let alone can it abide in something. Of course, the word abide gives the connotation of static, restful dwelling. That is the opposite of everything we just talked about. To be honest, I'm not sure what they were thinking, because as far as I can tell, this is the only time they render this Hebrew word in this fashion. Clearly, the translators of the ESV had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within man in mind when they chose this word abide. Now, it's another discussion of its own, but I'm going to stand in my affirmation that this is not the intent of the original authors as they use the concept here. The word in Hebrew is din which is the verb to judge. So where do you get abide from? It can also mean to vindicate, which, for those who don't know, means to clear someone of blame or suspicion. It can also mean to plead with. So the text is not saying that God will cease the indwelling of the supernatural spirit. Rather, it is saying that all along, God has been extending the life of the humans in order for them to repent and turn to him. But they are just so damn stubborn, it isn't making a difference anymore. He has been doné, judging, vindicating, clearing them of their sins, pleading with them to listen to him, and they just won't do it. If we remember the fatherly role that God has been playing from the beginning of the story, we can see all the more clearly this somber scene being painted. Just as God judges Adam and judges Cain, his judgment includes a promise, a means of atonement. He wants them to return to him because he loves them and wants them to live like any good father. It's the same here. Remember, this is not a theological dissertation, offering information and insight into historical events or metaphysical realities. 
This is scripture. It is a story, and the story here is of God's children rejecting him despite all he has done and continues to do. It is a tragedy of the darkest shades. So before this ceasing of indication, God has been giving them extra long lives in order to repent. Remember the the 900-year-old men uh, of Genesis chapter 5. But he sees that this is a lost cause, and he says, now, this is my rendering, not the ESV. My spirit will no longer vindicate man forever, in whom also is flesh, and his days will be 120 years. In the phrase, no longer vindicate man forever, there's a grammatical device called a negative prohibition. And Hebrew has two versions of a negative prohibition. Um, A this will no longer happen, if you will. One version is temporary, and the other is permanent. And it's made clear in the word choice of the Hebrew. If it's permanent, it is lo. And if it's temporary, it is ol. And here it is lo yadon. So it's saying no longer will the spirit vindicate forever. God is permanently removing his spirit, his wind, from this role of extending the lives of the humans for the sake of their repentance. And the consequence, since they are flesh, is that they will live 120 years, a quote-unquote more normal lifespan. Remember that this is in response to the calamity of the Nephilim, the tyrants, the mighty men. This calamity marked total hopelessness, total depravity, and total death. So God's ceasing of extending their lives is somber, but in a way also a blessing. They are totally fallen at this point, beyond return, so God no longer keeps them alive for extremely long periods of time, because their lives short to a more natural length, saving them from the new famine of human existence. Now, I'm not trying to defend God's actions in the story. He certainly doesn't need me to. But I want to emphasize that the humans are actively making matters worse for themselves, despite the obvious presence of their father pleading for their return. Again, this should hit close to home. We are no different. So moving on uh, with verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, like always, there's quite a bit to unpack in this section, especially as it relates to the original language. I'd like to start out with God's reaction to seeing the increasing evil of his creation. In the English, where we have the word regret, the Hebrew has the word nacham, which we introduced in the last episode. Nacham is kind of a difficult word to translate in English because it has a lot of implications. To put it concisely, Nacham carries with it something tragic, but with a hopeful outcome, which is why, depending on the context, it can be either translated as generally being sorrowful about an event, or it can be translated as a consolation. It also signifies a change to a positive situation, which is why we also translate this word to repent in English. So literally, It is sorrow plus consolation, which leads to repentance, a change of behavior. 
Coupled with Nacham in this passage is the occurrence of the word Atzab, which carries the meaning of grief. So literally, you have a negative event, which leads to sorrow, which leads to grief, which then leads to consolation, and then finally, a change of behavior, and then the positive outcome. So you can see in English, that's a whole lot of words. That's hard to, to wrap that all up into a nice little bow where you get one word out of it. Um, so that's why it's important to investigate the Hebrew further, because that's not something that you can just translate. So you might call this godly grief, right? As St. Paul does in his second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, check it out. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In other words, godly grief is always followed by hope. And we can see how this was foreshadowed with Noah being born from the cursed ground. Hope from grief. As we've already remarked in a previous podcast, it's almost as if St. Paul read the Old Testament. Crazy, right? So we need to pay attention to this, as it is the model for which the concept of repentance will be taught in the rest of Scripture. Remember that Genesis is the head, the Rosh, of the entire Scripture. So all of these concepts are being laid out early on. Everything you need to know about the biblical teaching can be learned simply by reading Genesis. So once again, it behooves us tremendously to pay extremely close attention. I want to stay on this notion of grief for a bit longer because I think it gets overlooked. Notice that the one who is grieving here is God himself. And not only is he grieving, but he's grieving to his core, his heart. God is suffering in grief now, we like to sugarcoat things like this because it undermines our theology. I can't count how many times I've heard people try and soften this by saying, God didn't really grieve or suffer. The Bible is just using anthropomorphic imagery for our understanding. Well, I'm sorry, but this is just silly. It's silly because the text gives us no indication that God cannot grieve as a human grieves. It just completely takes the piss out of it, really. We all know what grief feels like. When it's fresh and raw, it is a pain that is indescribable in words and much worse than anything physical pain can throw at you. That's why I've always really liked how the Eastern Church has depicted the crucifixion in its iconography. The physical suffering of Jesus is hardly ever the emphasis. The real suffering of the cross came from the shame and the abandonment. It's the emotional pain that really lingers. The fact that human beings were so fallen and wicked that they did more than blaspheme. They, they literally put God to death. But as you would expect divine wrath to follow such an extreme event, God instead decides to forgive his executioners and uses the cross as the instrument for our deliverance. So once again, this godly grief has turned into hope and to a call for repentance. So it honestly angers me when people talk about the crucifixion and how they feel the need to specify that it was only Christ's human nature that experienced the suffering and not his divine nature. Again, it's silly and uncalled for because the text doesn't make this distinction, so neither should we. So instead of effectively describing God as some platonic ideal of the transcendentals, let's interact with the God the scriptural authors are presenting to us. This is the challenge. So moving on, 
We hear about God planning to return his creation to the watery chaos of Tohu Abohu, but hope is not lost because there's an individual who has found grace in God's eyes. This, of course, is Noah, which should be obvious, not because we've heard this story before, but because of what his name means and how it functions. He is the rest, the nuach, which brings nacham, the threefold sorrow, comfort, and repentance. It's all right there in the text. Now, before we move on to the flood, I'd like to talk a bit more about the word nacham. It is obviously a play on words with nuach, but nacham also becomes a name of a character that is the prophet Nahum in the book that is attributed to him. Now, Nahum is really fascinating because there are quite a few links between the book of Nahum and the flood account in Genesis. Now, of course, the obvious one is the name, but there is also a verbal description of God's impending destruction of the holy city of Nineveh as a flood. In Nahum 1, 7 through 8, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. I mean, that sounds just like the, the biblical story. So the connection between Nahum and Noah is established even right there. And it's also important to note that the book of Nahum follows the book of Jonah, which began with God's indictment against Nineveh, but ends with him relenting his punishment, which would be a cause for comfort and consolation on the part of Nineveh. And then two books down the line, we have the book of the consolation, which is about the destruction of Nineveh. Because remember that the word Nacham isn't just consolation. It's the threefold journey of repentance, starting with that godly grief. I bring this up because I want the listener to understand the common threads present throughout Scripture and how these different sections are cross-referencing each other. I also want to continuously hone in on the point that Genesis is the key to understanding the rest of the scriptural message. That should be a cause of relief of Nacham, funny enough for us, to understand. Because most people, understandably so, view the Bible as some unapproachable undertaking. They're intimidated by it because they try to approach the whole thing all at once. But you don't have to do that on the onset. Learn Genesis inside and out. One book. And not even the entire book to begin with, just the first 11 chapters. If you can understand what is being presented in those 11 chapters and pay attention to themes and the bare-bones teaching, you'll be well on your way to tackle the rest of the canon. Amen. It's like I said earlier, the Bible teaches very practically. It uses intrinsically human concepts to permit us understanding. It uses humor, among other storytelling devices, to illustrate the obvious but elusive downfalls of human culture. We load so much cosmological proportion into the fall of man, for instance. But if you read the story, it's kind of humorous. And if we're honest with ourselves, it should hit close to home, hearing how the man handles his condemnation. Adam, man, is the one with the responsibility of the commandment. He disobeys, and when confronted, he says, It wasn't me. It's the woman's fault who convinced me to disobey. 
God doesn't agree, but humors him and turns to the woman who says, It wasn't me. It was the serpent who convinced me to disobey. Eve is literally blaming an animal for her disobedience. And for his disobedience, the man blames the wife he demanded God give him and actually blames God for giving her to him in the first place. And it's obvious God is in disagreement with these assertions because when he condemns the three of them, it is to an extent that objects their claims. The serpent gets the shortest condemnation. In fact, its condemnation is to do exactly what it is a serpent does, which is to crawl on the ground and its mouth run along the dust. So, of course, we we understand that there's greater meaning there, um, especially as it's elaborated on in, in later stories. But the serpent is just told to do what it already does. The woman... Uh, receives the next shortest, condemnation, and the man receives condemnation that is three times the length of the other two. You can't trick God. He doesn't need to be omnipotent, omniscious, omnipresent, omni-whatever-else to see what's going on. We can see it, too, when we put our faith in the text as it presents itself. God, the ultimate author of Scripture, isn't a God of confusion. He wants us to understand his teaching and to turn to him. But just like Adam we will find a way to twist God's commandments to suit our immediate passions, whatever they may be. And then we'll try to weasel our way out of conviction and judgment once it finds us by blaming anyone but ourselves. And perhaps we will even dare blaming God. The message is clear and ready to be heard. So let us hear it. The text is not complicated. We are complicated. Let us allow the text to uncomplicate us. It won't be easy. It won't feel good. But it is for good, both our good and the good of those around us. Thanks be to God, to whom belong all honor, glory, and worship. Amen. And he shall be like the tree which is planted by the streams of the waters. Alleluia.